0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register that is
1: cool and then you draw it cool. I guess wow. <laughs> Okay I really want to try. It. I'm Whitney, this is Max, he's three and a half, and then I'm six and a half. The first thing, God was angry about the people. The people were disobeying God. And then Noah and his family were eating dinner. Noah went out and then he saw something, and it was God, he told Noah, That he's going to flood the old earth and make sure the bad people go away. A nose? No, that's not a nose. What is it? I'm trying to draw a window. Oh, there's a lot of windows. So God told the people, build a big ark so they did. But how did they do that? God's power. Do you know? The first Noah parent. has lions and tigers. What are your favorite animals? Uh, My favorite animals are uh, a uh, tiger and a lion and an uh, elephant. I don't have a trunk. Or... This morning, he was playing lions and attacking us like he was a real lion. <sighs> What's your favorite animal, Whitney? Maybe not real, but I think I've seen one. Unicorn. Wow. <gasps> That's cool. How do you think he got all those animals on there? Two by two. Can and I hear clouds? These are not just any clouds. These are storm clouds. <gasps> it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Then it stopped raining, but they but it was still flooded. It was nice and calm, so. And then they lived on not, a humongous mountain. No, not yet. Then they wanted to check, so they let out a dove. The first time he caught nothing, so so he let it out the dove again. That time he he picked out an olive branch. Then God said. You can come out, the The land is dry. Then they had a wonderful life. The end. All right, Max, you wanna do the rainbow? Yeah. All right, I thought so. Okay, so you just, hmm, you wanna think about it. You to draw like this. Mm, I can do it by myself. This is how I do it, like that? at least six colors. Six colors? That's a lot! This red, orange, yellow, uh, blue, purple, and then pink. Like that's Okay, so now win. Wow. I'll draw a different thing, okay? I'll draw a different thing. And a storm's digging into the way!
0: Good morning, church. I tricked you. It is not morning anymore. (laughs) Let me begin by addressing the elephant in the room and answering the question that I know you all are asking. It is Sabbath, and so we must commence with confession. Yes, this is indeed a pink blazer. Amidst the many lessons I learned during my academic training, one proved to be particularly poignant. It was a rather succinct statement uttered by one of my mentors as he looked at me and said, Miguel, never forget. Language is a precise tool and it must be utilized concisely. I've thought about those words a lot in the ensuing years, and I'd be lying if I didn't admit that that has propelled me to attempt, with varying degrees of success, to employ care, courtesy, and above all, compassion when I speak. And that's why I recognize that talking about language can be a tricky topic, because we're not speaking about a static construct. Language is fluid. Now, permit me to illustrate that with a rather simplistic illustration. After we're done here in our service, many of us will go home, we will sit around tables, We will enjoy fellowship. And more than one of us will look down at a plate populated by an assorted group of ingredients. You'll have Fritos, beans, lettuce, help me out church, tomatoes, onions, olives, sour cream, Cheese, and for those of us who like to live dangerously, maybe even a jalapeno or two. (laughs) Now, the rest of the civilized world calls this culinary creation a taco salad, but not us. Oh, no. Our wonderfully complex tribe that is Adventism has created a completely new name. We've christened it, Haystacks. (laughs) And that should alert you to the reality that words are more than just tools we utilize to communicate concepts. They are ever-evolving, contextually-rich societal snapshots. Maybe that's what the great Anglo-American poet, playwright, and author T.S. Eliot had in mind when he composed that series of pithy poems entitled Four Quartets. Listen to Eliot's words as he describes language. He says, The words of last year belong to the language of last year. And the words of next year still await another voice. Now, I must admit that Elliot and I are kindred spirits because we both take words very seriously. This is a fact that has become painfully evident in my life. Take the following example as a case in point. You hear a knock at the door, and the conversation that ensues goes a little bit like this. Who's there? To which the other person typically responds, it's me. But not when this grammar hound goes knocking, for if I were to ever visit your doorstep, the exchange would be slightly different. Again, a knock at the door. You would answer, who's there? And then I would respond with the theologically profound and grammatically correct, it is I. (laughs) And then you are completely justified in your decision to do one of two things. Either you can say nobody's home, or you can mock me by answering, come on in, I. So here we are, both you and I, at the end of our summer sermon series. We've spent the past few weeks engaging in conversations with John's imperfect believers. We've done so because we want in this church to replace that guilt-inducing language that says God demands perfectionism With the gift of a grammar that is based on grace. Along our journey, we've encountered many conversation partners. Fearful fishermen. Sullen sisters. A worried woman. And even a tentative teacher. And here we are. Once again, huddled together as we look at one last character, the Jews. Now, I know what you're thinking, because your initial inclination is almost to automatically dismiss the Jews. They are, after all, typecast as the villains of the narrative. But permit me to posit this point. Looking at the Jews as the villains, comes from a superficial reading of the text, and if we've learned anything over the past few weeks, is that John does not want superficial texts. He doesn't desire you to give him superficial readings, for he has crafted a narrative, not for you to skim over, but for you to soul-search. So here it is. Once again, the book of John. Once again, a familiar character. Once again, an opportunity to encounter an imperfect believer. Now what is the gospel like? Well, listen to the words of that old patriotic sage as he describes John as a book that is shallow enough for a child to wait in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. John is, after all, the touchy gospel. It is pregnant with relationships. It is in that story that Jesus bends over, spits on the ground, and puts mud on the blind man's face. It is in that story that he crouches down, wraps a towel around his waist, and begins to clean the disciples' dirty feet. It is there that he calls Mary to come to him, He allows her to anoint him, and then he permits her to dry his toes with her hair. And it is at the end of the narrative when Mary Magdalene follows her master and clings to his body as he is preparing to ascend into heaven. The reality is, though, that John is also full of contradictions For it is also the story of the high Christology. Think about the first chapter, the prologue. There Jesus is described as residing in the Father's bosom. That word, the Greek kolpos, appears only one more time in the Gospel, in the 13th chapter, the 23rd verse, as he is attempting to describe the relationship between the beloved disciple as he too reclines on Christ's bosom. So what is he attempting to do with us imperfect believers? Well, maybe what John is trying to say to us this day is that you can also experience the same level of intimacy that God and Jesus have. That relationship between you and the Father is there, ready for the taking. But you see, that's where things get uncomfortable. Because... We don't do well with failure. We're uncomfortable with our imperfections. I'm a self-professed germaphobe. I don't like to be touched. And I don't like to touch. I don't like the things of this world. I mean, don't blame it on me. Look, it's understandable. I come from a faith tradition that has gotten very good at developing a language that creates clean lines between the mundane world and the sacred church. There's only one problem with viewing faith in that way. Only one quandary with that type of religion, and that is this the Johannine Jesus will have nothing to do with it. Those separations don't work for him. After all, incarnation is the ultimate act of self-identification. Like I said, the gospel is full of contradictions and tensions, but so is life. Think about the words of the great American writer E.B. White, famous for compri- composing that wonderful, beloved children's story, Charlotte's Web. White writes Every morning when I arise, I wrestle with the tension between my desire to save the world and my desire to savor the world. Well, with apologies to White, when it comes to John's narrative, that also won't do. For love's plan demanded that God, in order to save you and I, savor humanity. Jew and Gentile, free and slave, male and female, red, brown, Yellow, black, and white, we are all precious in His sight. So what about the Jews? Well, scholars will tell you that the term eudaioi, which is typically translated in our Bibles as the Jews, is probably designed to refer to the the religious leaders. And that's understandable. After all, John's initial audience was a group of Jewish Christians being expelled from the synagogue. So before you completely dismiss them, think about this. What if John reserves his most scalding critique not for a group of people, but rather for a faith system that has become exclusivist? And if that's the case, what would John say about our churches? What commentary would he provide to our congregations? But that's getting ahead of ourselves. The Jews are, after all, imperfect believers. I find particularly interesting the passages that are comprised in chapter seven, eight, and nine. Those three chapters are a perfect case study in chaos. If you follow the narrative, you are going to find doubting disciples, crowds that are debating, brothers who don't believe, and religious leaders who are confused you will also find that the arena has shifted. Jesus leaves the relative safety of northern Israel to begin a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, a pilgrimage that, as all of you know, will end in a pretty precarious position. John is trying to tell you that geography is also theology. While Jesus is... In Galilee, everything is perfect, but as soon as he moves south to Judea, you can begin to hear the ominous music play. The conflict reaches a crescendo in chapter eight, a passage that revolves around Jesus' authority. The Jews began to question his lineage To be sure, they throw some low blows. But it is Jesus who escalates the argument and turns the dialogue into a diatribe in verse 44 of chapter eight by referring to the Jews as sons of the devil. Why? Maybe we should dismiss them. Maybe we've been right all along in typecasting them. Well, hold on. Back up with me for a second. Because the Jews understand far much more than we give them credit for. Think about the heated debate that occurs in John chapter 6, verse 52. They know Jesus. They've accepted his power and his authority to provide manna, and they've even understood that he is pushing them to something greater. They ask the question, can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, you have to understand that this whole section is occurring with the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles which is intended to reminisce about Israel's desert-dwelling experience and God's providential care by providing water, light, and bread. It shouldn't surprise you, then, that throughout those three chapters, Jesus will refer to Himself as both the source of light, water, and the bread of life. But back to those Jews, What is it that they cannot accept? Well, we've already discovered that they're okay accepting that God can provide manna. The problem is that Jesus is claiming to be the enfleshed word of God. They can't navigate that. You see, much like us today, the Jews would prefer their God to be sanitized. And so they reject him. well to answer that question you have to open your eyes and your hearts to a new possibility and that is that through the gospel of John a pattern begins to a pattern begins to emerge and the pattern is that every time The Jews respond to Jesus attempting to defend their religious principles. They miss something important. And it's not like the principles don't matter. You see, the real tragedy of the whole story is that by rejecting Jesus, they have already violated those principles. Here he is, the ultimate divine revelation, and they missed it. You know why? Because they failed to recognize that the purpose of revelation is to challenge religion. Let me say that to you again, church. The purpose of Revelation is not to create more seminars. It is to challenge religion, and it is not only Jewish religion that needs challenging. Revelation purifies religion. It restores it to its purest expression. Well, what does that look like? Listen to the words of that great New Testament theologian, N.T. Wright, as he provides us our first step. Wright writes... The task of Christian theology is not to construct arguments, but rather to baptize intellectual ability, verbal dexterity, and eloquence into the body of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. So here is where the issue becomes personal. A few weeks ago, a dear friend came to visit me. He looked at me, then looked down and said, I am leaving the church. I can't handle the cognitive dissonance anymore. And that shook me. To see a committed Christian leaving the church moved me to begin and reflect on my relationship with this faith tradition that I love so much. It forced me to remember conversations. Conversations that happened around my family's living room as everyone shared the tragedy of Glacier View, a place in which religious principles took precedence over relationships. After the Congress at Glacier View, 120 pastors and teachers lost their job. And over the ensuing eight years, 180 preachers, professors, teachers, and pastors left the church. And so I had to figure out for myself, why do I do this? Why do I keep coming week after week after week to this place? Now, I love the Sabbath. And the idea of the state of the dead provides me some comfort. I believe in the spirit of prophecy. And I am breathlessly yearning for the second coming. Don't ask me about the sanctuary, because I still don't understand that one completely. But none of those doctrines are what keeps me in this church. What keeps me cemented as part of this faith community is a nugget that is as germane to Adventism as Big Frank's. We call it present truth. The idea that God speaks to us and that the ways in in which we respond to that God are subject to review. The idea that our words, our proclamations, and even our theology can be revised. Now listen to the words of that Blessed old lady, as she writes in counsels to editors and writers. This is Ellen White. There is no excuse for anyone taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed and that all our expositions of scripture are without an error. The fact is that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not a proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. Let me tell you what she is saying. She is saying, Adventism has never been and never will be a perfect church. because it is full of broken people. So what do we have? Well, the best we can offer to you imperfect believers is a table. A table full of his body and blood a table in which you will be invited to eat and to remember that once upon a time, God became man in order for you to escape the pressure of being perfect. I like the way that that Johannine prophet, Mary Oliver, puts it, as, he gives, as she gives us a perfect summary of the gospel. Oliver writes, doesn't everything die at last or too soon? So tell me. Oh, tell me what are you going to do with your precious, wonderful life? As for me and mine, well, I will decide to eat in his name. Amen. Amen. At this point, our church, as it does four times a year, invites you to participate In that act that comes naturally to Christian, the act of humility. We wash each other's feet because we recognize that Christ's kingdom is egalitarian. In the back of your bulletins, there are places with instructions on the rooms that you can perform the rite of humility. We pray that God move you as the water descends on your body.